Please join me if you'd like. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, page 774 of the Pew Bible. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. When the mariners, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Please pray with me. Lord, we are thankful for your grace and your mercy. Lord, you you don't have to have mercy on us, but you choose to. We don't deserve it. Uh, We can run from you. We can try to hide from you. We can disobey you. And always you're willing to to let us back in, Lord. Um, We pray that you will just uh, put it on our hearts to ask for your forgiveness when when we fail. We thank you, Lord, that there was not more loss of life with this hurricane this last week, week and a half. We thank you that um, you protected so many from, from losing. They may have lost everything they owned, but they didn't lose everything they have. And we'll th- we're thankful for that. Um, Lord, we're thankful that those of us that are here had the fuel to get here with the recent craze on, on the, at the gas pump. And we're also thankful that we were able to get here safely. I ask, Lord, that you open our hearts, open our minds to the words that Cody has for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I remember taking road trips as a 
child. And now as a father with children in the back seat, there's times when I decide to go a slightly different route than the children are accustomed to. There's times even that I'll pull up on my GPS on my phone and have it there in front of me and I type in an address and it tells me how to get there. And as I'm looking at it, I'm thinking, yeah, I don't like that way. I'll go this way. And so as I'm driving along and I am following the little green path on my phone and I decide now I'm going to go left when it tells me to go right, it begins to recalibrating. And it, 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 it's like short, short circuits the whole system. It doesn't know what to do. It keeps telling me, take U-turns and U-turns and U-turns. There's other times I'm driving along and I'm trusting it entirely, but I'm distracted by something and I find myself four lanes over and I watch my exit pass me on by. And the U-turn that I immediately want to take is five, ten miles down the road. Now I'm late, unable to make the change in direction I was interested in at the time I was interested in making it. Well, what about U-turns in life? Does the Bible give us any indication that we have the ability to stop going in a certain direction and to begin to go in another direction? And can we make that U-turn when we're interested in it or do we have to wait until there's an opportunity to sort of cross over. Well, over, overwhelmingly, and we'll see this in the book of Jonah, the answer is yes. We have the ability at any time as believers in Jesus Christ to turn, to change direction. And the Bible calls U-turns in life repentance. Turning from our sinful direction and rerouting, as it were, to God's right direction. In fact, God not only desires repentance, he demands repentance in order to display his glory to the world. Because what he wants the world to see is that there's hopelessness in this direction and that there's there's power and there's grace and there's ability and sufficiency and ultimately authority and going God's direction. And so therefore he demands that we repent. True repentance recognizes the rebellious nature of our sin in the light of a holy God, in the light of a sovereign God, in the light of a God with all authority. And it requires then, true repentance requires that we recognize his justice for our wrong direction either has to come through Christ or be punished ultimately in hell. Overwhelmingly, God in the word we learn, delights in mercifully saving wicked sinners. Mercifully saving wicked sinners. The heart of God as a judge desires repentance throughout the Bible. Think of a judge in Gillespie County. What kind of judge would be if all he desires is punish, punish, punish? No, he desires repentance. He desires change. And he uses the law, hopefully, to bring about change in that person's life. And how much more does God, as the judge of the earth, desire repentance? Hear Jeremiah 18, 6 through 8. 
O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done, declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so you are in my hand, O house of Israel. Listen, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, meaning if any time I desire to crush this nation because of their sin, And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. God delights in saving wicked sinners. We will see over and over again this morning and over the next three weeks as we study the four chapters of the book of Jonah. That the main character in this book is not Jonah. The main character of this book is not the big fish. The main character in this book is not Nineveh. But this book really functions more like a highlight reel of attribute after attribute after attribute of God. Who just displays himself like few other books really in the Bible do. Putting himself on display and highlighting one of the biggest highlights of the book, that being his abundant mercy. Well, we're going to take Jonah 1 through 16 this morning, and just by way of notes, if you're taking them, we're going to take verses 1 through 3 and one part, and then we'll take 4 through 16. Verses 1 through 3, I've, I've just noted, are worded as God's word, God's word commands and confronts. God's word commands and confronts. If you have your Bibles open, look there with me. You notice the beginning. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Well, this book is presumed to have been written somewhere around 8 BC, though knowing the date doesn't really help us understand when or what the book is about. More clear study actually helps us understand the book quite well without knowing the date. Uh, There's no mention of the author. We don't know who wrote it. Maybe Jonah did. Maybe someone else did. And thus, we're really unsure of who actually penned the book. Jonah is one of the 12 minor prophets. There are four major prophets. You're thinking minor is less than major. It's not. It's just shorter. There's four longer prophets. There's 12 lesser prophets. And if there's one minor prophet that is known more to everyone else, it's probably Jonah. You don't necessarily think of, oh yeah, I've heard a lot about Obadiah. I've heard a lot about Amos. I've heard a lot about Joel. Nah, probably not. Jonah and the big fish, Jonah and the whale, you probably or most have probably heard of that. If you're just looking at your Bible, you'll notice that there are four chapters and each of the four chapters have a different setting. The the scenes are different. For instance, chapter one, you mainly see the setting on the sea. Chapter two is mainly in the fish. Chapter 3 is in Nineveh, and chapter 4 is just outside of Nineveh. And some, as they read Jonah, because of the fantastic nature of many of the things that happen within it, conclude that this cannot have really happened. This is a fable, this is a myth, this is an allegory, this is a parable, whatever it might be. And yet, this morning, we can conclude that the miraculous events of these four chapters really did happen. Because this story reads uh, less like a message and more like a story. When you read 
all the other prophets, really, what you have is a man declaring a message from God. You don't really have that here. Jonah's preaching to Nineveh is all of about eight words. What you have is a story that's much more along the lines of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. Where you see this narrative, you see these scenes change and these fantastic things that happen that God does through a man. And we really, we shouldn't let the, the, the miraculous that happens in Jonah discount the authenticity of the book. We often think of science, and science is something that you can go into a lab and repeat over and over and over again. So what do you do with miracles where you can't repeat them? Well, everybody believes in miracles. But this book, and actually the key to believing it with faith, is believing about the miracle. This book actually ties very well to where we just came from, Mark 16, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because that's the miracle. If you have faith by Jesus Christ to believe that he was resurrected, what's a man and a fish? What's God controlling wind? What's a vine being growing up in, in just a few hours? Nothing. If he can resurrect his son from the dead, what's this? Even Christ treated the story of Jonah as historical in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. This book really crescendos all the way to chapter 4, verse 11. Just look there with me. Emphasis of the entire book is summed up in the six words there. And should not I pity Nineveh? Should not I have mercy on whom I will have mercy? Well, what is Nineveh and where is Nineveh? Well, Nineveh, uh, modern day Nineveh, would be on the edge of Mosul, Iraq. It's just east of the Tigris River. In Jonah's day, it was a city of immense splendor and power and wealth. Uh, the city covered some 1,850 acres. It had parks, it had hanging gardens, a double wall of protection around the city, even had a large library. King Sennacherib's uh, palace was there. He had twelve, he had two square miles of stone reliefs, stone carvings. You can actually see some of those carvings in the British Museum there in London. As of 2 Kings 15, Oh, we see the record, the record there that Israel was even paying tribute to Assyria. As Israel's power was declining, Assyria's was coming up strong. And so you can imagine Jonah, a prophet of God, wondering, I thought God was only concerned about us. We're his people, the nation of Israel. These enemies... These Ninevites, these people that are oppressing us. And yet the story of God, the story of Jonah says that God was very concerned about people other than Israel in the Old Testament. God delights to have abundant mercy on whom he will have mercy. And that mercy is not, even in the Old Testament, confined to a nation or a tribe or a race. Let's look with me there at verse 1. Jonah comes on scene. He's a prophet of the Lord. How do we know this? Well, there's two marks of a prophet in the Old Testament. One, they had to receive a word from the Lord. And two, what they said had to come true. 
Well, we know this actually happened. Second Kings 14.25 is the only place we see Jonah elsewhere in the scriptures. And he had a word from the Lord. And that word was that the borders of Israel under King Jeroboam II would expand. And that actually did come true. We see that he's the son of Amittai. We're not sure of who that man is. We know little of Jonah other than this. But here he has a word from the Lord. And he says, verse 2, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Notice here, verse 2, the wickedness of all men is before the face of God. God is omnipresent. He knows of our sin, both here and in Mosul, Iraq, and in Beijing, China, and in every little place. He's well aware of it. He's as aware of it here as he is anywhere else. His mercy, though, provides the potential for repentance. He's concerned there about the evil of this city and he tells them to go and call out against it. Call them to repent. Call them to recognize that judgment is coming upon sin. We've got to highlight even here the mercy of God throughout the Old Testament over wicked, wicked, wicked people. Sodom and Gomorrah? homosexuality, all that's going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, God sends a warning, repent. Jerusalem, all their adultery, all their idolatry, sins, 16 prophets, repent. God delights to see wicked sinners repent by his acts of mercy. He calls his man to action here. Arise and go. We've got to realize here that God's word always accomplishes a creative act. When we come to church on a Sunday morning and hear the word of God, this isn't just the words of Cody Carnett. By God's grace, these are his words and his words pierce the darkest, most wicked heart and bring about a creative act of life. And it takes hearts that have been, been changed and transformed and desire even greater transformation. The word of God always does a creative act. And therefore, the most important thing about a church is not the words that we sing on the screen. That's important. It's not the type of music that we have, though that's important. It's not the community that we have, though that's important. The most, single most important component of any church is the proclamation of the word of God. I trust and I hope that's why you're here this morning. Not because of the people that you like sitting in the pew, as nice as that may be. But the most important component is the word of God proclaimed. Well, let's speed up our understanding of what's going on here. Jonah and what seems to be a unbelievable turn of events. Prophet of God, hearing a word from God, having success previously in his prophetic ministry, turns and runs. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. We have to understand immediately here that if we desire to rebel and run from God in our sin, the devil is always going to have a getaway car waiting for us to take us where we desire to go. Though he's not interested in paying the price of that getaway car, that's going to be laid upon us. Even here, Jonah pays the fare. And yet God's mercy is not leaving us in our sin. He oftentimes doesn't allow us to stay in our sin. He draws us back 
And yet the consequences are still ours to pay. Tarshish wasn't some place just right around the corner. God was calling him to go to Nineveh. That's north and east from where he's at. He goes south and west. And doesn't just go south and west. He goes by sea. And a Hebrew in that day wasn't interested in much boat travel. They preferred over land. Not over sea. And he's not going just because he likes Tarshish. He's not going because he wants to go another direction. He's fleeing, as you can see there in verse 3, from the presence of the Lord. You see that twice. Rose to flee from to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And he went there to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. This should call to mind, and, and he should have known this. Jonah should have known this. Psalm 139, verse 7 and 8. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. Our sin drives us to do things that are opposite God's ways. Opposite to the point of extremes even. Things that don't make any sense. And so when God commands and even demands our obedience... What happens when we rebelliously refuse to obey him and we run the opposite direction? Does that handcuff God's ability? I had plan A, Cody decides to rebel, refuse and run, go this way. Is God now stuck with no man? Well, Jonah 4 through 16 answers that question. Second point, Jonah attempts to flee. You'll notice in verse 1, The instigator of the action, the instigator of the going is God. Jonah disobeys. God's not left handcuffed. He initiates again and he hurls a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. No man or men can thwart God's perfect plan. No one can outrun God. And this is not some small little storm. These mariners were probably uh, not Hebrews. Uh, They were men that were well accustomed to the sea. They were probably well seasoned, having seen many storms. And this one causes them to be quite afraid. And even to cry out to their many gods, polytheistic. You see here the holiness and omnipresence of God. Oh Jonah, you think you can run? He knows exactly where Jonah's at. And he even initiates to call Jonah back in repentance. We see the power of God upon the seas. Psalm 33 verse 7. It says, God gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. He puts the deeps in jars. The picture that came to my mind this week is of one of my daughters just sort of pushing dirt together into a little mound. Or or taking a little teapot and and their sovereign control of that teapot just pouring water into little cups and sort of organizing their tea. That's exactly the power God has. Oh, the Baltic Sea? The Atlantic? Oh, let's put the Pacific over here. 24.5 trillion gallons of water were dumped by Hurricane Harvey. That's nothing. That is a drop compared to what God can do. 
A large portion of 24.5 trillion gallons dropped over Texas and Louisiana. A large portion of that, of 19 trillion of that, were dumped over Houston. We, we, we can't even comprehend that. If you took 19 trillion gallons, dropped that over California, it would end their drought twice over. You drop 19 trillion gallons over Arizona and Arizona and you're a foot deep across all of Arizona. A foot deep. You take little Mount Bellevue, Texas, 51.88 inches of rain. It takes 23 years in Death Valley, California to, to, to accumulate that much rain. 23 years in a week, in a few days. We're not messing with a God who just says, Oh, bummer. Jonah's going another direction. What do I do? Jonah, God can create a storm around Jonah and nowhere else. God can drop 51.8 inches of rain on one town and nowhere else. We're not serving a feeble God. We're serving the God of the universe who's, who just takes water and puts it in jars. You can see then the idiotic nature of what Jonah's doing. Really, Jonah? You're going to run from this God? Even the polyistic mariners here, verse 5, cry out to their all their gods and, and they're just, they're afraid. What does Jonah do? He doesn't stay on deck. That's what you typically do in a storm. He goes below. That's the worst place to go in a storm. That ship's going to sink you don't want to be in the hole of the ship. That's where he goes. He goes even further into the wrong direction. You can really see that his running from God is taking on an entirely idiotic nature. This is making no sense, Jonah. And you really have to wonder if Jonah in his rebellion against God has not gotten to the point where he's thinking death is the most is, is the greatest, is the farthest direction I could run. What else do you say? He's not making any wise choices. He's not going up on deck and saying, guys, it's about me here. I'm in, no. He's running further and further and further from God and is refusing to repent of his sin to the point even that he's willing to even take seemingly his own life to escape the presence of the Lord. What in a ridiculous nature is sin. But this isn't the first time someone's run from God. Adam and Eve, the perfect couple, sin, hey, let's go hide behind this bush. Maybe he won't see us. Staring in the face of perfect creation. Moses, I, 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 I can't talk very well. Jeremiah, over and over and over again, what we see is God using weak, frail, sinful people for his glory. And yet what a ridiculous thought it is that we would think God, we, we would be handcuffing God by our weakness. Or that we could run from God in our sin. God sees every sin that we've ever committed. And yet this also highlights in, in, in stark 2020 clarity, the wonder of Jesus Christ responding to the will of the Father, not my will, but thine be done. 
Christ obeying the commission that Jonah failed at, God, Christ never failed at. Jonah running from his enemies, from these wicked people. Christ running toward wicked people. What a wonderful Savior we have. Well, we see this captain, verse 6, comes, ironically, uses the exact same words that God had used to call Jonah to go. Arise, get up out of your bed, pray to your God. Jonah's thinking, oh, not another one. God is not, is not limited here to using only believers for his glory. Even, even pagans can be used. Unbelieving, idol worshippers, the hardest of men even. Think of a sailor, sometimes seen as some of the hardest and calloused of men. And yet God is, is using this man unknowingly to really pound into the conscience of, uh, of Jonah. Well, they, they decide, come up on deck. You pray, perhaps your God, small g, we're polyistic. We believe in many gods as sailors. We've got to figure out which one that we can sort of register with. Pull the lever and this sea storm's going to stop. You come up on deck. We're going to cast some lots and figure out what's going on. Who's got the problem? And, and lots back then were probably two small stones, maybe a, a black and a white, sort of thinking of our dice of today. And oftentimes they would be in pairs and you would toss them. And if, if they both came up black, well, then that's a bad sign. Both came up white, then that's a, a better sign. And if they were controversial, then don't do anything. That kind of thing. And you got to imagine Jonah watching these die get thrown onto the ground thinking, I know where it's going to come. Sure enough, it lands right on Jonah. And they ask him, tell us where you're from, what you do, who you are, what's your country. Why? Because they're thinking, well, <laughs> we need more information to know which God you might be serving. That way we can pray to your God. That way we can get this storm to stop. And yet God even using their questions to harp on him. And notice verse 9 and 10. I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he told them. He's saying one thing, he's doing another. These pagan men don't even know the Lord. Smell his hypocrisy. These were... Small g, God-fearing men. Their idols of their own making have no power. And yet they recognize if you claim to follow a God, you better follow that God. You better be loyal to him. You better obey him. And you're not. And that's hypocritical. Hypocrisy is, is one of the blackest eyes upon the church. Many claiming to be believers and yet living in rebellion to the authority of God's word. Paul even rebuked uh, the Jews in Romans 2.21. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law discern dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. We're all hypocrites. To say so makes us, to, say, to, to deny that makes us liars. Does this handcuff God, our sin and hypocrisy? Well, look at the response of these pagan men, 11 through 14. Jonah says, just throw me over. 
they say, well, no, we love life more than you seem to love life, Jonah. We'll row harder. What does God do? He increases the this tempest and wind even more. And they're unable to the point that they call out. Verse 14. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Psalm 115, 2 through 3. The nations ask, where is their God? And the answer is, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And the irony of this yet again is Jonah's blood is nowhere near innocent. And yet the casting of this seemingly by the mariners innocent blood into the water to kill this man is going to solve the problem. It doesn't necessarily solve the problem, which is Jonah's problem of his rebellion. But what we do recognize here is that the one and innocent blood, Jesus Christ, was cast out for us. Was murdered for us and his blood was then transferred upon us. It precisely pleased the Lord to have that happen for us. As it pleased the Lord for Jonah to be cast upon, in a sense, the sea of God's mercy. Notice they hurl him overboard. I don't know what Jonah's thinking. Maybe he understands if this is really what I deserve. I've run far enough from God, I just deserve death. Or maybe he's thinking, I want death. I'm not sure. Either way, there's nothing here that assumes that Jonah knows that he's going to be saved or that the mariners know that he's going to be saved. You see that there's four hurlings here. Verse 4, the Lord hurls a great wind. Verse 5, they hurl over cargo to lighten the ship. Verse 12, Jonah says, hurl me. And verse 15, they do. I, I, I don't know. But you can imagine Jonah being swung. One, two... Jonah, kind of flopping in the wind, thinking, what have I done? He has come so far from the prophet of God to now being... And he's thrown in. His sin just about took others' lives. We've got to recognize this morning that our sin is going to have collateral damage. It will have collateral to the point in Jonah's life that it almost killed some people. And yet we also have to understand in contrast that the power of God to correct one sinner has collateral power to bring others to himself. And that's exactly what happens here. God is working on Jonah's life who's not repentant at this point, And yet his working powerfully draws others to worship. That's what happens in verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We commit, is what they're saying, to worshiping God from this point on, the one true God. And they're doing that as Jonah is being thrown overboard. Scene cuts at this point. We'll pick up what happens to Jonah next week. It doesn't really say here. If the storm immediately calmed or they sailed on and Jonah flapped in the breeze, for who knows? We'll pick up. We do know God mercifully intervenes if you just read verse 17. But stopping here this morning, I, I want to close with some application. 
This passage argues for us that God demands our obedience. It also argues that that God is not limited by our sin and even uses our sin to gain glory. So two questions to think about as we go. Number one, does your life need a U-turn? Does your life need a U-turn? We see in this scripture two sins, self-centeredness, hypocrisy. What other sin do you need to turn from that you won't and haven't? Brothers and sisters, trusting God's grace, responding in obedience to his command under his mercy is incomparable to what sinful disobedience will offer you. So if the enemy is lying to you and saying, oh, if you repent of that sin, that'll do it. Think of what others are going to think about you. You may lose my, you may lose your job. Your wife might leave you. Your husband might run. Your children will never look at you the same again. It is all a lie. Oh yes, there may be consequences to your sin and there will be. But the peace that passes all understanding comes when we trust and obey and we throw ourselves upon God's mercy. Sin won't bring you the happiness you're interested in. Proverbs 28, 13. Whoever conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. So are you running from God? Is there sin you're unwilling to confess and repent of? Today is a great day to repent of sin. Because you're either going to have to obey God and repent or face divine intervention. And trust me, you want to face God and repent. If you're here this morning and you're thinking, I've got a lot of sin and I don't know what to do with it. Well, I wanted to first note to you, just going back again to verse 2, that God sees every one of your sins. He beholds them clearly and he must divinely intervene and judge that sin. But I also want you to know of God's abundant mercy that states that if you will throw yourself upon that mercy and trust in Jesus Christ alone as the payment, as the forgiveness for the forgiveness of your sins, you will be saved. Jonah here is, is thrown undesiringly into the sea of God's mercy and yet God even saves him. Humble yourself, repent of your sin and seek the Lord and you will be saved. Through Christ alone. Richard Sibbs, the great Puritan, says, There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. There is more mercy in Christ than sin in us. Why don't you try God on that this morning? Why don't you test whether or not that's really true? That there is more mercy in Christ than sin in you? Repent. One cannot outrun God, but one cannot outrun his hand of mercy to save sinners. Those two truths go hand in hand. Second question, who are the Ninevites in your life? 
Who are the Ninevites in your life? Notice Jonah, he's being called to an inner city mission. He's been called to a foreign city hundreds of miles away. He's been called to go to his enemies. The ones that he has no interest in being in his church. He is sort of under this false assumption that he's got a monopoly on God as an Israelite. Do we feel that way here at FCF? That we've got a monopoly on God. So that when you come through those doors, you better look like us, feel like us, dress like us, dance like us, whatever like us. Jonah 4 verse 2 tells us exactly the reason why Jonah didn't want to go to the Ninevites. Because he didn't want to deal with those people when he knew God's mercy would be manifested upon them. Genesis, uh, Jonah 4 2. Oh Lord, is, is not this why I said I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish? For I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful. God, I don't want to talk to that person who's got sleeve tattoos down both sides. That looks like they're as high as a kite. Because if I, if I give them the gospel and they ask me how can I be saved. And I tell them through Jesus Christ's blood upon the cross. And they repent and they show up in my church. i got to deal with that person. Why can't God just save nice, clean people like me? As if I was nice and clean. So what do we want here at FCF? You want white, middle-class America? You want everybody that educates like you? You want people that dress like you? You want people that listen to music like you do? Educate like you do? You don't get that choice if you're going to preach a sound gospel. You get to see the manifold wisdom of God displayed to all the nation through jars of clay like us. So is our heart for the lost? Is our heart for the lost? No matter what they look like, what their ethnicity is, is our heart desired to see Muslims come walking through that door? Homosexuals? Drunks, businessmen that seem to have it all together and are addicted to their work. As our heart for the lost. Certainly we see in Jonah God's desire for evangelism and missions. To take his word, his glory to all the world. And should that not also be our desire? God is not interested in cul-de-sacs. He's interested in conduits. He's interested in using us. So if you're sitting here this morning, he wants to use you. And he will. Whether you like it or not. His use of us is to further his glory, not our own well-being or comfort. There was a song just recently composed. We'll learn it one day. The same person who, uh, who wrote Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. It's a song entitled His Mercy is More. We realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us here this morning are sinners and called to repentance. And all of us here this morning have the opportunity for repentance. To throw ourselves upon the sea of his mercy that is more than our sin. So in closing I just want to read this psalm, this song to you. What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient all knowing he counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins they are many, his mercy is more. 
What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood neath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness. New every morn. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, what a delight it is to know that every single one of us is a sinner. Why is that a delight? Because there's only one Savior. And it isn't any one of us. As much as we might look like we've got it together this morning, as much as we might look like we haven't sinned, as much as we might be hiding our unrepentant sin, as much as we might be running from you, your mercy is more and is held out to us. And in fact, your love is to such an extent that for those in Jesus Christ and even your love for the lost, you will hurl whatever need be. You will discipline as desired to draw us back in repentance for your glory That the world may know that what we were doing is not the way. But Christ and your commands are the way. Father, we thank you that your mercy is more. That there's more mercy in Christ than in our sin. Than than all of our sin. We thrust ourselves upon you. I pray that if there's a, a heart this morning that has not repented of their sin. Or refuses to repent of their sin. That you would break it. You would crush it. Because it's only then when life can really come forth. Do so for your glory, we ask. Don't let us walk in unrepentance. Don't let us hide our sin. We thank you that you love us enough to do what is necessary to accomplish your purpose and be glorified through us. And if that's in repentance then may you gain much, much glory. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we have a a wonderful gift for us this morning. We've we've heard the, the word proclaimed. And now we get to see the word presented. We get to see the word touched. We've seen the gospel proclaimed and now we get to see the gospel presented. And this is a table. And and when you take a table and you put something on the table, you're, you're presenting it. You're laying it out. You're displaying it. And what's displayed for us This morning is the work of Christ. Laying his body. Shedding his blood. For sinners. And so what is. What is wonderful this morning for us. Is that everything we've heard. 
and all of the word and all its demands and proclamations and all its requirements, you and I have no ability in and ourselves to do. We have, we have no right to come to this table because we somehow got one or two things right along the way. We come to this table not because we had a right, but because who is seated? Who's seated at the head of the table, which is the risen Christ, and who is offered, which is the, the crucified Christ. So brothers and sisters, I would just encourage you this morning to rejoice in this table. This table is not for perfect people. This table is for sinners. This table is for sinners repentant. So one of the things we ask this morning, I would ask is that, and we would all ask because we're taking it together, is that if you desire to take this table and yet you aren't repentant of your sin. Notice I didn't say you aren't perfect. You weren't perfect. I'm saying if you're not willing to repent of your sin, then don't, then don't take the table because you're not taking it for what it's there for, which is to remind you that you aren't perfect and to repent and follow the Lord. If you're not a believer, this is, we, we, we are so glad that you're here with us this morning, but this table is not for you. This table is for those who have recognized the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We practice open communion, so if you are a baptized believer of Jesus Christ, we would be delighted if you would take this communion with us. It's not to be taken in an unworthy manner, but it's taken in a worthy manner. And that worthy manner is not because we got it right, but because Jesus got it right for us. He shed his blood, he broke his body. And we're reminded of that. And so we rejoice as we take it together. I'm just going to read one passage of scriptures quickly here. And then I'll ask the men who are going to serve us to come forward. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, for your sake, He, Christ, God, God made Him to be sin. Who is that Christ? To be sin who knew no sin, who was perfect, who offered every prayer that he offered, God heard. Every work that he did, God accepted. Everything he said, God approved of. Every thought he thought, God delighted in. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Christ, we, all of us here this morning, as believers in Jesus Christ, might become the righteousness of God. So let us rejoice that our righteousness is not our own, but the righteousness of Christ as we take this table together. I'm going to pray and then ask the men who are going to serve to come forward. Let's pray. Father, you are good to us. As we now take the body of Christ represented, as we take the blood of Christ represented, may we be well reminded this morning of the forgiveness through that shed blood and through that broken body for us. Oh, Father, encourage our hearts of the perfection of Christ. There was no sin ever, period, who took all our sin. And may we continue to walk by the power of your grace and repentance. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.